Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember I'm only as hip as my guest. And I gotta tell you something, people. As we as we plan our move, me and Joanne, as we're leaving at the end of April, um, I'll tell you this, it's crazy because we're she wants to go to all these LA places she never wanted to go. She doesn't eat fast food, she doesn't eat junk food, but she wants to go to Roscoe's and she wants to go to Pink's. So it's gonna be interesting. I gotta find out what other places I wanna go so I can try to get some, you know really bad junk food so you know maybe the the ghetto dogs down in the bed area or some good taco trucks anyway we have a we have a great show today we have a very very talented gentleman who is actually from the east coast living in la and his name is richie Cotson. how you doing richie i'm good how are you good good so uh so you digging this weather i mean being an east coast kid at heart i mean how long have you been in la oh well more than half my life um i moved to LA when I was 20, and I'm 47, so I'm pretty adjusted. <laughs> right. Now, yeah. now, I guess you guys got some storms back there, right, recently? What's that? You guys had some big snowstorms back there recently, we, is that true? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm still in LA. I, I'm moving at the end of April, back east. But, uh, they, oh, I'm confused. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I thought you were back there already. No, I'm, 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 in, I'm in Burbank. <laughs> <laughs> moving. Oh, okay. Oh, there you go. All right. Yeah. Okay. So, but now, now, I heard, I was reading that your musical career started when you were five. You started playing piano? Well, yeah, I don't know if you call it much of a career then, but, you know, I started, you know, I was one of those kids that was always kind of dancing around trying to entertain my family, and somebody said, hey, you know, there's a piano in the house, maybe you should giving piano lessons, so it started taking me, and, you know, I, I didn't really connect with it, I liked the instrument, I didn't really like going to the lady's house, and what she was showing me was just not interesting to my little brain, but a few years later, I, I, I saw a guitar at a yard sale, and that's when I really uh, realized that I wanted to play music, and I wanted to play the guitar. Did it, did it speak out to you? I mean, it's like, because you're still a young age, I mean, I know when I was a kid, I, I played trombone, I, don't, I think because I knew there was only like no trombonist in the school and I could make the band, but I stunk. But uh, did you, I mean, did the guitar speak out to you? I mean, what made, What do you think made you gravitate to the guitar at, at a young age? Well, I loved music, you know, that was my thing. You know, I loved music and I, I knew I wanted to do something, you know, singing or something. And the guitar, I, I know, uh, I, I remember even the moment seeing it sitting at a yard sale and I kind of connected it to like the rock bands back then and, the, and even actually Kiss would be the one you know, I remember seeing the footage of Kiss on, on some news channel like a short clip and you know, Gene was breathing fire and it looked like the coolest thing ever and, it, and I didn't know what he was, he was holding a bass or a guitar or what I just knew but that looked cool, and, and it sounded cool, and I and that's what I wanted to do. So when I saw the guitar sitting at the yard sale, it all kind of clicked in my little mind. And so I, I begged my dad to get by the guitar. Of course, we took that guitar to, to a local teacher, and he let us know that it was basically unplayable. So then I had to go out and get a proper guitar to learn on. Okay, uh, you're cutting out a little bit. Are you, are you far from the phone? Uh, I'm right on it. Okay, cool. All right. Uh, so, so you, you had to go. You had to go. The, the guitar was unplayable. Yeah, you know. Well, when I took it to the teacher, uh, he let us know that you know he couldn't teach me on that instrument because it was just 
not, you know, not playable. So we went to the, the music store and we got something that was actually much better. We got a, my first guitar, which was a Gibson Marauders. Now, now, when you picked it up, did did it feel at home? And did it feel like an extension? I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but you know, did you sit there and just pick it up and feel it and go, "Man, this is this is going to be my livelihood." Well, no, because I mean, you know, I was just a kid, so I didn't really think about the notion of of livelihood or anything like that. But I did know that I wanted to learn how to play it. So, you know, I, you know, I, I did not, you know, I didn't pick it up and suddenly magically, you know, start playing Hendrix licks, but. I certainly, uh, when I picked it up, I, I, I didn't put it down. I'll put it that way. You know, I just kind of kept messing with it. And over time, years, you know, of just being really curious and, and wanting to learn and willing to put the time into practice, eventually uh, I started noticing progress. And by the time I was 12, I formed a band. We would play around, you know, local little fairs and, and school functions. And that's kind of when things started happening, you know. When I started playing live is when everything started coming together. When you were playing live and at that young age, did did you feel and did people look at you differently like this kid's really good for a 12-year-old? Because I'm sure, you know, there's so many guitarists, but when you're out there playing live, were people taking notice of you? Yeah, that was starting to happen. That, 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 that did happen when I was young, like even... Um, you know, from the beginning, even in the band, you know, cause I was kind of always like a little hot dog, like a showman, you know, I would do all kinds of tricks and kind of, you know, get a lot of attention that way. But then when the guitar playing started to progress, it was always, oh my God, that kid's great for 15, he's only 15, like that kind of stuff, which then eventually got annoying to me because eventually I was like, I was 16 and I was better than, than the 24-year-olds back then in my area. And they were still saying he's really good for 16. And I remember that used to really piss me off. <laughs> yeah, you're, but, like, uh, dude, you're like, dude, you're like, dude, I'm better I'm than, older, so yeah, I'm, I'm better than the good. big guys. <laughs> what? No, you're sitting there going, I'm better than the, the older dudes. Don't, don't stop, stop pigeonholing me at a certain age. Yeah, they used to really piss me off. <laughs> now, what kind of music were you playing at that age? What, what was your band playing? What were you really into? What? genre i mean rock and roll but who were you playing well we had a cover band and we had a, a female singer and then we had uh, some of the other guys in the band sang as well so we did everything from dio to aretha franklin to um Odo to rush kansas a lot of progressive rock we did um and then a couple metal tunes because I, I i was a little metal head back then Top 40 stuff, like Missing Persons, you know. Um, God, so many songs we did, you know. Mostly Top 40, but we had like a progressive rock kind of thing, you know. Like we did YYZ from Rush and La Vila Strangiata, which was that long instrumental. Um, so we did some interesting things. Now, were you still taking lessons at this time, or were you really self-teaching yourself and just getting your chops from being on stage? Yeah, you know, once I once I was like 15, I was in a full-time bar band, and we played four nights a week in the tri-state area back then. So uh, at that point, I didn't take lessons, so I just didn't have time. Um, and then I went back at one point and got some lessons in that era. But, um, you know, once 
I started really playing a lot in the cover band, there just wasn't time between school and everything else. So uh, my last were just, you know, getting out and playing live and been playing with the guys in my band. You know, the guys that were in my band were all really good musicians. So I learned from them, you know, uh, different aspects of things. So, What were some of the places where you were playing? Were you playing the Galaxy or, or places like that? or when- No, we played, like in Reading in my town, there was a place called the Silo, which was really cool, a great place to play. Uh, there was a place in Baltimore called Hammerjacks we used to play. Um, there was a place in Delaware called Stone something or other. There was a four-in-one club in Delaware. Uh, there were some places in Jersey that we played. Um, there was one place in Jersey that was a nightmare because we used to have to do like four sets and we would be in like literally four in the morning and uh, oh god it was just brutal for the three nights in a row Friday, Saturday so you're playing you know you're, you're getting better you're playing all the time at that point what are your aspirations I mean what, what are you looking to do because you're still in high school but you're, you're playing with the big boys in the area you're playing with all their people what was your? What were you trying to focus on? Well, you know, in the beginning it was really exciting and cool, but then, like within three years in, like by the time—not even three years—by the time I was seventeen, I remember really hating playing cover songs. Like it became a real issue. Like I, I hate what I'm doing. I hate being in bars. I hate playing cover tunes. I want to do my own music, and so I remember with the band we made like a little five song. EP, and I think maybe two or three of the songs were mine, and the other songs the bass player wrote, and we had some interest from a record label, I think it was Sony back then, and they wanted to hear more material, and we just, for whatever reason, the guys in the band, from my memory, I, we couldn't get any material together and get it recorded, and, and the other problem back then is those guys wanted to continue on playing covers because they were making a lot of money. And so they wanted to stay in the club circuit. Me as a teenager, I hated it. I was like, everybody's drunk, you know, doing drugs and, and everything else. I want out. I want to go make original music. So my mindset was either this band is going to become an exclusively all original band or I'm going to go do it on my own. And so that's what happened. I got a record deal when I was 18, um, and I took it, and I moved to San Francisco for three months and made my record, and then I did a couple of records for that until I moved to Los Angeles in 1990. What uh, made you move to Los Angeles? Just because the music scene was blowing up, or you just were tired of San Francisco, or what brought you down here? No, I, I got, uh, I, I, I never really officially lived in San Francisco, but I spent a lot of time there. So I was going back and forth from Pennsylvania out to California. And then uh, a label called Interscope, which back then was a brand new list, bought my contract uh, from Shrapnel Records, and they told me I needed to be in L.A. And so that's when I moved to L.A., um, once I signed with Interscope. Now, being a signed artist and such, was it easier to you to move into L.A. and to sort of uh, emulsify yourself into the music scene here? Well, it was easy for me for a couple of reasons. First reason, yes, because I was signed to a major label and the guys that signed me were kind of at the top of the food chain in the record business. I mean, I remember 
Yeah, I being in L.A. for two weeks, all of a sudden I was in Malibu playing football with Bruce Springsteen at the Ivy House. So, um, you know, it was pretty interesting. You know, I, I was kind of in a circle of people right away because of who signed me and, my, and, and that thing. And then the other thing was I was also already known as a guitar player. I had already been on the cover of Guitar World magazine, and I have already put out three records, so I was also known as a musician. So it wasn't like I came to L.A. to try and make it. I already had done three records, and I already was known internationally as a guitar player. So um, it wasn't like I just came up bus out of nowhere. So when you got out there, you had three albums. I mean, how would you create, constantly create material? Three albums is a lot of, a lot of songwriting and playing. I mean, how did you keep yourself, you know, creative? Well, you know, back then it wasn't, it, it was no question. It wasn't, it was just effortless. It's what I did. I, mean, I had a little guest house that I lived in and... I'd wake up, and if I had a nice gift song, I'd put off it. And my record label was in in different situations to co-write with people, um, and so that's what I was doing. And I I didn't inspire. It. I just kept writing, and you know, I wasn't. How do I do this? This is what I do. So now you're in LA. You're creating, and is that just your focus? You know, are you still learning as a guitarist? Are you are you trying to branch into different areas of your music genres? Yeah, I kind of, you know, the, the whole guitar thing at that point was just, you know, the guitar became nothing more than a tool for me to to write. You know, and I had a little piano in my place, so I would write either on the keyboard or the guitar, and I was writing and demoing songs, and that lasted for about a year. Until um, at some point, I, you know, I got into a bit of a, a disagreement with my record label as to what I'm doing. And I remember they kind of signed me to be this kind of hard rock, you know, guitar player guy that sang. And I really had lost interest in doing anything that would be labeled as heavy metal or hard rock. I was writing kind of more soulful kind of R&B-ish rock stuff, you know, kind of similar to what I'm doing now, I guess, uh, to a certain extent. But eventually, um, you know, I said, look, I have to make a record. And so we, we got Danny Korsmar who's going to produce my record, who I love. I love his work. And I, I was in his house in Santa Monica picking songs. He put in a budget, which was really cheap for back then, really reasonable. At the last minute, the record company said, we're not going to allow you to make this record with Danny. We do not want you making this record. We signed you to be a hard rock artist, and that's what you're going to do. And so at that point, I was 21 or 20 years old, and I, I literally was like, well, fuck that. I'm not going to make a record. I'm not going to do anything. Fuck it. And I demanded to be released out of my contract. Yeah, I was frustrated. You know, I didn't want to have somebody that didn't know me tell me what I was going to do. And so they dropped me, um, and so I lost my deal. And around the same time of me losing my record deal, I was approached by Brett Michaels to join Poison, which is really ironic that I was used to make a heavy metal hard rock record as a solo artist, but then turn around and join, you know, a pop metal band. It was kind of bizarre, but 
there was a whole other logic behind that for me as well. So, um, but that that was really the first. That all happened within the first year of me living in Los Angeles. So you were very busy. Now, what was it like joining a band like that? Because you, as you said, you know, you're a guy who's you know writing on his own. As you said, you, you're getting more soul and bluesy. You don't want to write the metal. Then you get into this. What is it like then when all of a sudden you're in a band that's very popular? I know you wrote some songs with them. And then associated with that, you go into these tours, I'm sure. Yeah, it was interesting. You know, the, the, when I met Brett Michael uh, to his house, and, and I really liked him, and I liked a lot of what he had to say, and he clearly did research on me, and he was into what I was doing, and um, he basically, said that, you know, you would be a member of the band, you'd be right songs, you know, we don't want a hired gun, we want someone that's actually going to contribute to the sound of the band, and so I think that we made a really great record, I, I still think we made a fantastic record, um, and especially considering we're kind of coming from two very different worlds, but, you know, your question about what it was like, it was really kind of interesting, you know, but at the same time it felt like where I was supposed to be, you know, I mean, we were, um, the band was still very big when I joined the band, the, the year before I joined their previous tour was in People Magazine as the highest grossing rock and roll tour of the year, so they were a very, very big band at the point that I joined, um, and then by the time the record was finished, you know, the first single did very well, but then there was kind of a shift, and MTV really uh, it was really MTV that just decided that, you know, we're not going to allow bands from this era to really exist on our channel. And back then, obviously, you didn't have the Internet, so without MTV, you didn't really have a way to, to push your, your new record. You could still tour, but, you know, things just kind of unraveled a little bit. And then I went on and, and went back to making solo records, like, immediately after that. Now, when did you, when you went back to making solo records, when did you feel your music style was shifting a little bit to what you wanted to do? And was it hard for you to get signed saying that, you know, you seemed to know what you wanted and you're a respected musician? Was it hard for you to get a deal after that? Or what happened that made you sit there and say, No, okay. you know, interestingly enough, um, I had a, a recording contract within weeks of leaving, leaving Poison. I was signed to Geffen. Um, by a very powerful guy uh, that was no longer in the business, but um, he signed me, and it was it was one of those big record deals that they used to throw around back in the day. And I simultaneously signed with Warner Brothers Publishing, which was another one of those big deals. And suddenly, you know, financially, I was in a whole world at that moment, and and so it was kind of interesting. But thing that was really interesting was how inside that world so little attention was put on the actual music and so much attention was put on stuff that really didn't matter. It really was very, very frustrating. And I remember when I, when I got signed, I really had a clear vision on what I wanted to do with the record. And, you know, the guy was insisting that I had a producer, which I didn't want. Um, I remember having a meeting with another famous producer and he listened to the demo and he said, well, you know, your background vocals sound kind of gospel-y. Are you sure you really want that sound? And I'm looking at him like, are you fucking kidding me? What are you, a fucking idiot? Of course I want that sound. That's why I fucking recorded it that way. So needless to say, that guy wasn't going to get near the studio with me, and he was a big-time guy. Um, and he actually went back to my record label and said, 
You know, uh, Richie's wife is singing harmony vocals on his demos. I just want to make you aware of that. So then I get this meeting with my A&R guy, and he's saying, well, no women are going to sing on your record. I'm not dealing with women on your record. And I'm like, what? Like, every single act that I love in rock has female background singers, from Bob Seger to the friggin' Black Crows. What, what are you talking about? Like, and then suddenly I realized, wow, like, this, the record business is kind of, like, run by a bunch of fucking lunatics and people that really don't know anything about music and just kind of want to swing their dick and show how powerful they are. So it was weird. But in the end, I was able to get a great record producer that I had worked with on the Poison record. Richie Zito came in, and I insisted on working with him because I knew from the past working with him with the Poison record that he knew me and he knew my style and he knew what I wanted to do. And so in the end, I love the record we made. And I, I remember we were sitting in the president of Warner Brothers publishing office, Rick Shoemaker, I think his name was. And one of the songs came on, and he stopped the record after that. It was him and my manager. And he stopped the record. And he said, this is a number one hit, this song. He said, I hope Geffen doesn't fuck this up. And that, that was his quote. Sure enough, when it came time to release the record, Geffen fucked it up. Uh, they didn't promote me. They shelved the project. They, put, they printed 15,000 records and put them out, and it was just a really a sad situation. Uh, but that's the record business. That's how it goes. So how do you sit there? I mean, how do you deal with that psychologically? Because you know your product's good. Someone's telling you it's the number one record, but you're not getting the support. I mean, it must just get frustrating. Do you just sit there and go, screw it, I'm just going to keep doing my thing, and I'm going to get my following? I mean, where where do you go from there? Well, you go to a lot of places, and a lot of dark places. I mean, the 90s was really a hard, a really, really horrible time for me. Um, you know, it was really bad, because I had a shitload of fucking money in the bank, and I had made what I thought was a great record, and suddenly the rug just pulled out from under me, and no real outlet until I found another record deal. And um, I remember coming out of that, RCA wanted to pick me up. And so, you know, I, I had a meeting with them and, you know, I started playing them music. And again, it was kind of leaning more towards, you know, less of the metal rock thing. And then they lost interest. So like the 90s was kind of a nightmare. Um, and I remember I was still able to like do gigs here and there. I was doing like licensing where like I would make a record and then I would go and find like uh, smaller companies to release the record for me so at least I had some kind of a presence so like those records were records like in 1998 I put a record out called What Is um, around that time I had a record called Something to Say there was another one called Break It All Down so those were records where I was just kind of doing whatever I wanted and then just kind of selling them to little labels to distribute but when the internet exploded and there was a way to put your music directly on iTunes, that's when everything changed for me because I didn't need to have a record label and I had an outlet to be able to um, get my, my music out there. And that's when my base started building and that's like the early 2000s. And at that point, I was getting calls or, you know, to go and do these tours, like in Europe and Brazil. So I would literally just go, you know, grab, you know, two other dudes, you know, learn my songs and go in a van for 
five weeks and drive all over Europe and, and play everywhere. And that's kind of how I kind of went back to basics and built my base. And now, you know, years later, uh, I'm kind of doing everything in-house and I'm, and I'm playing to bigger audiences. And so I guess you're, you're, the thing you said to me was right. You had to kind of go back and just keep at it, you know, and stay true to your music and, and just, you know, hope for the best. Well, before you went back to your music, you also ended up in Mr. Big for a while, right? Yeah, I did. You know, that was an interesting time because that was 1999. I put out a solo record called Break It All Down. Uh, I had done another little project record for Shrapnel. They wanted me to do this little blues thing because they started a blues label. So they were trying to get all their guys to do like blues records. So like I did some covers and a couple of originals on, on that record. So those two records were released in 99. And at the same time, I was in a band with Stanley Clark and we were signed to Sony. So we were doing our record and we did a tour in Europe and spent like a month over there. And around that time is when Mr. Big approached me um, because uh, Paul had left and they wanted to keep doing stuff. And so I did, I ended up teaming up with Mr. Big and I did two studio records with them. Not a whole lot of touring because back then, and I know Mr. Big tours more now, but back then, there really only market that they would tour in was Japan. So we did Japan, well, actually Japan and Southeast Asia. So we did a lot of stuff in Japan with Mr. Big. And then I think we might have done one small U.S. thing on the East Coast. I mean, no more than five or six shows. So it was an interesting thing to be in that band because practically I was a member of the band, but the band was only really active for two months out of the year, you know. So it was kind of... It was cool because, you know, we'd go in and make a record and then play, you know, maybe 20 shows at the most. And then that- when, you, when you're with Mr. Big, and even when you were with Poison, when you were making a record and you were involved in it, but it wasn't your solo record because, you know, you have your tastes. I mean, is that hard as a singer-songwriter to sit there and say, okay, it's a group project when you're used to doing it on your own? Yeah, you know, it's a little bit of... You have to kind of surrender, you know, it's a little give and take, and, you know, it's something like, you know, thankfully I, I have the luxury of having my solo career, and it's my, what I've always done, and that's what I do, and that's what I am. So, like, the band stuff that I've done, you know, it's like, it's a diversion for me from what I normally am doing. So, what am in the band situation, I'm mentally prepared for it, and I'm already adjusting myself to know that, all right, well, you know, the bass player might not play the bass line that you have in mind for this song. Or then again, he might, you know, if I suggest something. With the Poison thing, um, those guys really uh, let me kind of walk the dog on that, so to speak. I mean, I had a lot of uh, creative input, tons. You know, I really had, I never was frustrated in, in working with them. And they contributed a lot as well, obviously. You know, they have their own voice and opinion. But, um, you know, I really, I had, I, it was really easy. Um, Mr. Big was a little different only because the formula for Mr. Big was different. Because if somebody wrote a song in Poison, for example, everybody still split it four ways. So, you know, I knew that if I wrote, and I wrote like four or five songs on that record that were mine, had nothing to do with those guys, but I knew the minute I brought them in, you know, we were going to split everything four ways. So it, it, 
it kind of eliminated some kind of weird political tension. Whereas with uh, Mr. Big, you know, you had Eric bringing songs in, the drummer was bringing songs, I would bring in songs. So there was a little bit of a different kind of strain on the writing mechanism, at least in my opinion. It was a little more strange. But, you know, I, have, I wasn't in the band for very long, and like I said, uh, the, when, the, when I was active with them, I, wasn't, I was active maximum for two months out of the year. So even though when you look back and say, you know, Richie Carson was in Mr. Big, it's like, well, yeah, I kind of was and I kind of wasn't. I mean, I did, I did two albums and two tours, but I probably did four months, it probably totaled four months worth of work, you know. So in my mind, it was cool and I had fun, but it's almost like I forget sometimes. Like, yeah, I could do that. You know what <laughs> I mean? And it's same thing, same thing with poison, because I mean, we're talking about something I did you know, over 25 years ago. So obviously in my mind, you know, I would never even think about Poison unless someone asked me about it in an interview. And I'm happy to talk about it, but it's just, from my perspective, I've got, you know, 21 solo records out there, you know, and, and one Poison record. So you do the math, you know. Right. Now of your solo albums, I mean, you totally, you're, you're, you're I'm sure you, how do you keep churning it out? I mean, do you sit there? I mean, like when you wake up, do you constantly write? I mean, 21 albums is a lot of albums. How do you sit there and get yourself in the mind frame and you know what your, you know, you, you know what your fans want or do your fans always expect something different from you? I mean, how do you approach a new project? Because 21 albums, I mean, that's a shitload of freaking albums. Well, I, I, well, yes and no. I mean, look, 21 records unto itself is a lot. But when you're talking about someone who made their first record when they're 18, and now I'm 47, you know, it's it's not even a record a year. So, it's, it, you know, I think a lot of that's a bit of an illusion um, just because of how, you know, when I started, because I started so young. But the thing about it is the process for me, like, I don't force anything. So, you know, I've had, like, I have this new record out now, Salting Earth, but the, the record has been done since September. And I, what I did this time around is once I had the record done, I basically took a hiatus from anything musical. And I had the record done back in August. And so from then on, I didn't touch the guitar. I didn't sing. I did one appearance that I can remember with um, Nina Bettencourt, Steve Amorello. We got yeah, somewhere in L.A. But I took a break, and I, and I did some other things. And then I said to myself, now, at some point, I'm going to go back and listen to this record. If I like it, I'm going to prepare to release it. So that's obviously what I'm doing now, obviously. <laughs> I ended up liking what I did. But, you know, it's a, it's a process that when I make a record, it's over the course of years. You know, I have songs where I've written that are finished, that I've never released. I have songs that are half written and half recorded. So really what happens, and I can use the new record Salting Earth as an example, is I had some ideas at some point, let's say a year ago or whatever it was, some new ideas, and I went and recorded them. So let's say I had, in the course of a couple months, three or four new ideas that I developed into songs. So if these songs, if I like them and I think, wow, these songs really represent something that I want to share. I want to make a record around it. A lot of times I go back and start listening to other things that I recorded that I never finished. And then I suddenly find the inspiration to finish them. So at the end of the day, 
I'll have maybe 15, 20 songs that are pretty much recorded. Then I can sit back and say, okay, well, do they fit together? Do I have a record here? Does it make sense to release the record? And then I pick the ones that I like and put it up. So it, it, it appears on the outside that it's this machine that's just turning stuff up, but it's really not. There's really a lot of time that goes by where I'm relatively inactive, you know, waiting to <laughs> waiting to, for something to happen to inspire me to write. And then eventually, um, you know, it, it all comes together. But I don't have this theory. I don't believe in writer's block because, to my mind, if I'm not writing, it means I don't have anything to say. It's like I look at it like input and output. If I have, if I have stuff happening in my life and I'm getting input, eventually it's going to come out in my music. And if nothing's coming out musically, it means I got to go out and do a little more living and get some more input. So it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward for me. Now, how'd you come up with a title for your for this latest album? And and do you put a lot of process into your song titles and titles? I mean, how does a, an artist come up with a song title when there's so many words? Yeah, that's a good one. Well, usually there's just something that you know um, that ties things together. You know, um, let me think here about. Well, I mean, like a song like on the new record, like the song "My Rock." You know, it's in my mind when I wrote the, the song, I'm talking about somebody that's that's there for me. So it's pretty obvious that I'm going to call it "My Rock." Usually. The titles, you know, for me, they become pretty obvious. What isn't, what's not always obvious is album titles. Um, it's kind of tricky. And this one was really tricky because a lot of times I'll just take a song that I think is a, is a, a, a lead track and I'll, I'll name the album, you know, after that, you know. But this time it just, I didn't feel that that made sense, so... Uh, I was trying to think of a title, and then there was a line in the opening song, um, and I said something about salting earth, and I thought, man, that's a great title for me right now, because I look at the, the title salting earth, it's kind of leaving something behind, you know, like some little, you know, salting earth, you know, you're leaving something uh, that, that just kind of flavors, you know, when, you, when you're gone years from now, you know, I think that, you know, an artist or a musician or someone that's creating things, you know, leaving something behind. So that's kind of where that came from. Um, and, and, you know, the lyric came out of the opening track. So I thought that was an appropriate uh, title at this stage of the game. Now, seeing that you're, you're 47 and I'm 52, so we grew up in the time when albums, I always talk to my bad guests about this, about when albums were, you know, it was an event to buy an album. You know, it was it was something you held and you looked at. When you put your tracks in order, do you still think of that philosophy? Because you know, you always remember, oh yeah, man. You know, Led Zeppelin two side. You know, side one's better than side two. I mean, when you put your and I know it's differently now because we don't have albums. But when you put your song track together, is there a certain placement you do and a momentum you want to gain? You know, I, sequence is important to me. Yeah. And, and so, uh, even such that when we started um, letting people hear the rest, uh, I just told my publicist, make sure that you give them the sequence so they listen to it in order, because it does mean something. And so, sequence is important. And um, this record was easy for sequence. You know, it has to do with the, just how it feels, really. I mean, that's the only thing I can say when you sequence in a record. Just, you know, you have an instinct. Um, and so it just feels you know, right, and and that that's, that's it. It's not it's not a science for me, you know. 
now you, you did a video end of earth now how did you choose that song to do the video and actually you might know this guy you probably know him as a guitarist he went to my high school he posted it last night do you know reggie Wu? Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, he posted your video last night. It was just ironic because I put who's going to be on my show this week and a girl who went to our high school said, I think Steve Cooper's interviewing him soon. And so he posted a video. How do you choose what song will be in the video? Well, I think it was kind of obvious for me when I listened to the record. My, my favorite stuff on the record, believe it or not, on this record is the more piano-driven stuff. But, you know, I figure because I've kind of been absent for quite some time as far as new music goes, um, you know, I haven't toured in, in a while with my, with my solo band and all that sort of thing. I wanted to come out with something that kind of picked up where I left off on, on, the, on the heavier side of things. And so I thought that End of Earth was the perfect song for that because it has elements of, of you know, the style of singing, that I like to do, and also the guitar solo at the end, you know, and it's kind of a long song, actually, so I thought, you know, it's not a typical three-minute kind of little ditty, so to speak. So we decided to make that the first single, and uh, and then being that's the first single, and that's what we did, you know, we made a video for that. And um, I've got another video finished as well for another song that we'll probably put out next month, so... Um, now, do you have a you, do you have a very strong hand in creating the video? I know a lot of times, you know, that's the that, you know people decide, you know, the director decides what you know the video is going to look like. Do you are you very involved with the concept, and are you are you a conceptual person when it comes to visualizing one of your songs? So so involved that I'm holding the camera. Yeah, so <laughs> that video. Um, you know, all the shots uh, that I met in, you know, I'm filming, and, and all the shots I am in, my wife is filming. And so we did the concept, Julia and I did it together. Um, you know, that was the trickiest thing. You know, I had the performance footage, which is kind of with that red light uh, and the kind of quick, kind of choppy edits. And so I had that, and I remember thinking, like, you know, talk. Julia and I'm like, we need like a, a secondary story to go along with this. So we had the idea of uh, me kind of being stuck in this little box and having the voodoo doll represent that and me kind of being tortured. And then finally at the end, I escape. I'm, I get out of the box and I'm up, you know, in the mountains and the heavens, so to speak. And and, and, I, and, I, and I soar to the end of Earth, which is basically the lyric of the song. And so this kind of sub-story tied it perfectly with the storyline of the song. And so we found a way to kind of execute it, and um, we did everything. Uh, we shot it all out, out on my land out here at the house, and then at the end we ended up going to the, to the beach and doing the, the last shot. So it was a lot of fun, and I edited it on my laptop, and that's the end of it. And, you know, I, hey, look, if someone wants to give me a, a huge buzz, you know, I'll make my own lemonade video. But, uh, you know, we're doing everything in-house, and, and I think in a weird way my, my base kind of likes that. You know, they all know that, you know, we're doing, I'm producing my own records and, and distributing them myself, and, and I think that's part of the charm, you know, of what we're doing. There's no... There's no corporate element here whatsoever. It's all, 
done out of love and, and fun and just for the fun of it. How would you describe your fan base? Who who is a like who likes Richie Cotts music? Like when you sit there, if you could, you know, build a a doll of someone who likes it, what would that doll look like? Or, or, I mean, are they are they uh, what what do you think when you play live? What do you see as your crowd? Well, it's interesting because it really is, it changes um, continent to continent. Believe it or not, now here in the United States. Um, I have a lot of musicians that, that, that follow me, but then I also have a lot of general rock fans, like people that are kind of from our age group that love you know, the rock that we grew up on. And that, so I have that base. And then there's kind of you know, a, a younger demographic as well. But really, I think in the United States, a lot of it is uh, people that are pretty close to my age that kind of grew up. Um, on what they call real rock and roll, you know what I mean, like Led Zeppelin or, or that sort of thing. So that's really cool. Now, I notice when I go to places like Brazil or Argentina, I have a much younger demographic, like, like you know, 20 years younger than me, uh, which is interesting. And I think probably countries like Brazil, my music is actually played on mainstream radio. So I'm reaching out the whole other demographic, whereas in the United States, you know, you'll hear me on satellite radio, but you don't hear me on, you know, you're not going to hear a Richie Cotton song come up after a Bruno Mars track, so uh, as much as I would like that, that just doesn't happen, so the demographic really varies, um, and it, Europe is interesting, it, it's, it's kind of a hybrid of what I have in the United States and what I have in Brazil, and, um, you know, and I'm, I'm naming those places because those are probably my my number one markets. You know, it's interesting on Facebook, you can go in there and see where most of the people are. And I guess the United States is where most of my fans are, and then Brazil is number two. And then after that, it just kind of spreads out in, in various European countries like you know, England or Italy and stuff like that. Now, you also, in your solo career, your career you opened for the Stones in Japan? I did in 2006. That was pretty interesting. How'd that come about? Like, I mean, it's the Stones, you know, it's like, did they did they hit you up? Did, were they fans of yours? I mean, that'd be pretty no. pretty impressive. I wish. No. no, that would be great if Keith called me and asked me. No. <laughs> uh, you know, I knew people in their camp, though. Um, you know, I, I knew uh, their techs and, and Bernard Fowler. I've known him for years. Who, in case you guys don't know, he, he's been the background singer for for over 20 years with them. Uh, so, um, no, the way that happened was kind of interesting. I, I, was, I had done a record. It was a weird record that I did for a company in Japan where I, I covered, like, these animation songs. It was something that was only released in Japan, but they wanted an uh, uh, English-speaking artist to reinterpret these Japanese cartoon songs. It's really bizarre job, but they contracted me to do it, and it was kind of a challenge, and so I did it, but they were talking about, and this company actually had done a lot of my tours back when I used to tour Japan a lot in the late 90s, early 2000s, and so they put the record out, and they said, well, we we uh, need to figure out how to market you for this record, and then in the next breath, they told me, well, yeah, we, we got the bid for the Rolling Stones tour. And I'm like, well, 
if you're trying to figure out how to market this record, why don't you put me on the bill and have me open up for the Stones? Now, I was kind of joking, right. but they're like, sort of name, great idea. So I'm like, yeah, I said, I said, I said I'm full of great ideas. So they, uh, they, they, they do that, you know, they, they, they contact the Stones people and they say, hey, we'd like this kid to open up for you. And, and then, so the Stones people had to go on my website and look at me and make sure I wasn't, you know, something that they didn't want on the bill. And then they said, yeah, okay, that's fine. And so I got there, and it, I didn't really tell anybody until after I did it, because I still didn't think it was going to happen. But then I got there, and I knew half the guys on the crew, and uh, they were so nice to me, and it was really great. It was, it was really cool. We played, like, all the stadiums, like the indoor stadiums, like the Osaka Dome and the Tokyo Dome and Sapporo Dome. And it was really great. I think we did, like, five or six shows. So now you do your, 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 you know, you're prolific with your albums. You put a bunch of albums out your solo career. How did the Winery Dogs come about? And, and did you choose those guys because they're also very respected musicians like yourself? No, I didn't choose anything. You know, that kind of fell in my lap. I guess what was going on on their side of the fence, they had done, uh, Billy and Mike had a project with Derek Sherinian and Tony McAlpine. So it was the four of them, and they did a world tour, and... Um, it was kind of like a kind of shreddy, kind of progressive thing, very cool. And then I guess they hit it off and wanted to do like a, a more, you know, mainstream kind of thing. And they were trying to do something, I, from what I was told, with John Sykes, and that never got off the ground for whatever reason. And then out of the blue, Eddie Trunk had called me and said, hey, would you be interested in forming, you know, doing a power trio project with, uh, with Billy Sheehan and Mike Portnoy. And I said, maybe. I said, you know, they can call me and they can talk about it. Now, on my side of the fence, it was kind of interesting. And it's all about timing, you know, because it could have came at the wrong time. It would have never happened. But I had just come off a long touring cycle for a record I had done called 24 Hours. We did, like, you know, a month and a half in Europe and in South America and all over the place. And I was kind of getting a little bit burned out. And I remember saying to one of my friends, man, I, I would love to like just take a break from Richie Cotson. And like what I meant by that was like all the stuff that comes with being a solo artist because I do so much myself, uh, producing the record, writing songs, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I just kind of blindly said, man, I could just use a friggin' break. And no sooner than I say that, I got that phone call. And so we got together, me and Billy and Mike, and, and kind of, started just jamming in my studio at my old house and then uh, came up with a couple ideas and um, it just kind of happened real mellow. So we wrote like, we wrote, I don't know, four or five songs together and then I brought in uh, four or five songs that I had previously been working on. Uh, some of them were finished, some were in the process of being finished. And by the end of it, we ended up whipping up a pretty interesting record and it was funny because I, I really thought, all right, well, you know, this will be a cool project. I'll do this record with these guys, and then I'll go back, you know, do my next solo record, and that'll be the end of it. Well, this thing came out, and so many people were so interested and so excited about it and loved the music and on and on and on and that we just thought, well, this is definitely more than just a little project. I guess we should probably go back and make another record. So <laughs> after we did a long, long tour, 
cycle, we jumped right back in, did another studio record, and did another long tour cycle. And now we're, we're going to take a break and go back to doing some other things. I'm ready now to go back to being Richie Carson, and I know Billy and Mike have some, I've heard a rumor that they're doing something that I think is going to be really, really, really cool. I can't say what it is, but I think they've got something in the works that is going to blow a lot of people away. So um, I think it's going to be a fun year for all of us that we're not playing together. And then down the line, you never know. We'll get back together and do another vector or do a tour or an EP, whatever. Now, with your new album... How does you go about promoting these days? I mean, because you know, you see, you know, is it what is it like marketing an album? Is it is it almost like a grassroots? Is it is it you know social media? How are you going to promote Salting Earth? I know you're going on tour, and how do you choose which cities you're going to play with your tour? Well, great questions, and I'm glad you asked them because the the, the last part of what you said, how do I choose where I play? This is something that comes up all the time. I don't choose any of it, and, and I really want people to know that, and this is true with so many bands, we don't really choose where we play, you know, I, I want to play everywhere, I want to play everywhere I can, but there's so much involved, and that's when you hire an agent, like I, I can't, that's the one thing I can't do, you know, I can go in the studio and, and engineer and mix a record and all that sort of thing, but I can't book a tour, <laughs> so I hire, uh, I have an agent that just books everything, and then they tell me where I'm going to play. I mean, I can suggest things. I can say, oh, I love playing at, you know, the so-and-so club or this room or that room. But in the end, you know, the agencies look at the routing and expenses and just logistics. And, and you trust that they make the best decisions for you. And I have a, a great agent that does that for me. So, you know, I, I basically have so many other things that are on my mind. I don't want to deal with booking myself, and I don't know how. So we let the agent do that. Um, the other part of your question, uh, what, tell me what it was again. I lost my train. How thought. do you how do you promote these days? It's like it's like because you know, oh, it's so right. it's so yeah. different. It's so different than it used to be. And you know, and it's kind of weird. You know, it's really really crazy, and it drives me nuts. You sign these record deals with people, and in my mind, when I'm signing a record contract and I'm giving up a huge percentage of my income. I'm expecting the record company to promote. I'm expecting the record company. And so what, ha what always happens is they end up coming back after they take a huge piece of your income and expecting you to promote your record. Well, you got to tweet this, and you got to Instagram that. And you gotta, I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're the one that's supposed to promote this. Why don't you get me a commercial tie-in? Why don't you get me a TV spot? Why don't you run full-page ads in all the magazines? Why don't you promote the record? Because you're making more money from the record than I am. So it really kind of pisses me off. Now, this situation I'm in now, I own 100% of the record. So I can go on Twitter and, and, and let my, my base know that I have a record available if you're interested. Um, you know, and, and, and that's really about it. I can talk to folks like you who are who have been supportive and are interested in, in what I'm doing. And, and, and a lot of times, you know, this is a great way to, to let people know, you know, beyond the fact that there's a record, you know, the process and what's behind it. So, you know, doing interviews and, and uh, but really in the end, the way it's structured now, playing live is the key. Um, you know, that's the one thing that people can't really Steal, so to speak. And I hate using the word steal because, you know, a lot of times people don't realize 
when they're sharing music, you know, what goes into making the music, you know, there are expenses there. But um, playing live, that's really key. And, and so, and the thing about social media, you know, once you get to a point where people are aware of you and they're interested in what you're doing, that's really the, the, the best means, you know, uh, is just to, to be active and, and let your base know what you're doing. Now, playing live for you, because you have such a catalog, I know it's been over years and your musical style's changed, but how do you put a set list together? I mean, I know you're going to be sitting there and playing off your new album, and do you already have, you know, do people expect a certain encore from you? I mean, how do you put your set list together when you have so much material? I mean, what do you do? Is it the same every night, or you change it for the audience? How do you do that? It's really... It's really funny you ask that because it is it is kind of challenging. And last time I was out with my band, we had a set that was really well put together, and we stuck with it. Prior to that, I wouldn't have set lists for many many years. I never had set lists. I would call tunes, and so I would be in the dressing room. We'd know, all right, well, we're going to open with you know so and so, and that actually leads into the other song, and then from there I would just call tunes. Then, on the last tour, I came up with a set list that really worked, and we stuck with it. This time, we will do a set list as well, but it's interesting because I'm introducing some other components. You know, I'm, I'm bringing in songs from the past that I've never, ever, ever played live, and I'm really excited about that. Um, and also, for the new record, we're playing seven out of the ten songs from the new record, which normally... When I make a new record, I might do one or two songs from the new record. This time, we're really diving in and, and, and tackling the new record. And then we're doing a lot of stuff. I'm, I'm playing way more piano on this, on this tour. Um, and as far as the sequence of the set list, I have an idea. But then, like, when we got in rehearsals a few days ago, suddenly we started jamming. And so much about Dylan and Mike, who are the guys on my band, they're such great musicians and such great listeners. We can start jamming, and suddenly it evolves into something we never thought. So we have things that are now being constructed in the set list that I would have never thought about if I had not got in there in the room and messed around and played with them. So the set is still being evolved. We've got the beginning kind of written out. We're going to go back in next week and, and do some more playing and, and solidify everything. But I think it's going to be a really cool... Um, and different show for, for, for me. You know, in, in the past, it was just get up uh, with the trio and, and just kind of wing it. And I think now there's going to be some more kind of carved out moments that I hope are going to be really effective. Now, the tour starts, I believe, April 21st at the Canyon Club? That's right. It does. Now, do you like playing in your own backyard so when you can drive home after the gig? Well, you know, it's funny. That's... <laughs> I shouldn't say that, but that Canyon Club literally is in my own backyard. <laughs> um, and it's funny because years ago, for 20 years, I lived up in the hill uh, behind the baked potato there in, in, uh, uh, you know, in Hollywood or whatever. And so um, it was fun because I used to do gigs there and, and uh, at the baked potato. And, and I used to joke I have the best dressing room in the world because I'd be up at my house <laughs> getting ready and literally kind of walk down the hill or have someone drive me down the hill and, and do the show, you know. And so now uh, I moved out to Malibu Canyon, so uh, I'm really, really close to the to the Canyon Club. So that would be my new my new haunt. <laughs> but, 
yeah, it's fun, man. We're starting to tour here in California, and then we're going to go all, all the way across, you know, Pennsylvania, Nashville. We're going to go everywhere. And you're playing in uh, New Hope on May 14th. I know. That's a great town, isn't it? It's a great little town. In fact, I'll be moving back, and I may have to come out and see that show. I, uh, it's funny, because I moved back at the end of April, and I used to do stand-up comedy. I'm actually playing the Philadelphia's Comedy Club, the Helium, on May 11th and May 13th, so I may just have to make that my entertainment week. <laughs> oh, that's great. That'd be cool. Well, make sure that you come up and introduce yourself so I can put a, a face to this conversation. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I want to thank you for coming on. It was, I'm glad we got in touch, and... Uh, you know, as I said, you're you're very respected in, in, in the circle, and it's good you have a great fan base, and it's good that you've really, seems that you've really kept to yourself, I mean, not yourself, true to yourself, and you've actually been able to have a career where a lot of times people can't stay true to themselves, you know, and they, they end, up, end up being ha- not being happy. So it seems like you're happy still playing music, you're happy touring, and what can be better than that, right? Right on. Well, thanks, man. Thanks for talking to me, and have a safe move back. Okay. And give all your social media info real quick. Okay. Um, well, uh, com, my website. And then if you go on that, there's links to everything. My Twitter, my Instagram. Uh, my Twitter is uh, Ritzy underscore Cotson. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know off the top of my head the other. Oh, YouTube is uh, Richie Cotson Official. And then, um, I don't know what I am on Instagram, but it's probably something with my name, but the links are all on my website. Okay, great. So people, check them out. Check out Richie Cotson. Go to richiecotson.com. It's, it's a great website, people. It's very cool. It's very informative. And go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have uh, 599 episodes up there, posting all the time. You can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. I'll get back to you. Um, Twitter, at coopertalk. I tweet all the time. Also, I have two clients now for my new PR company. If you need someone to tweet for you or someone to do social media for you or any of that stuff, you can hit me up at cooper at coopertalk.com. And my other website, stopthesalt.com. Remember when I went through that health problem? Well, I wrote a cookbook. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. No pictures to intimidate you. No long list of ingredients. It's 120 recipes. You can buy it at amazon.com. But buy it at stopthesalt.com because I make more money. So that's about it. So people, check out Richie Kotzen, and it's R-I-C-H-I-E-K-O-T-Z-E-N.com. Check his media. Check him on YouTube. Listen to him jam. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as my, hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.